0: welcome back everyone this is the changelog and i'm your host adam stokowiak this is episode 174 We're talking metasploit today with trevor rosen and james egypt lee these are the guys behind metasploit which is the world's most used penetration testing software great show today we had four awesome sponsors CodeShip, ship top harvest and transloaded our first sponsor is CodeShip. CodeShip launched a brand new feature called Organizations a few months back. Everyone's been loving it. Now you can create teams. You can set permissions for your specific team members, and you can improve collaboration in your continuous delivery workflows. You can maintain your centralized control over your entire organization's projects and teams with this new feature. It's super awesome. And you can save 20% off any premium plan you choose for three months by using our code, the Law Podcast. Again, that code is the Change Podcast. 100% off any plan you choose for three months. Head to codeship.com slash TheChangeLaw to get started. And one more thing I want to tell you about. Sean Devine is doing an API workshop called API First Training. And guess what? He's going to use Codeship as a demo tool. The URL to learn more about that API training is in our show notes. So check those out. But now on to the show.
1: Welcome back everyone, Jared here. Today I'm joined by two interesting guys. This is Trevor Rosen and James Egypt Lee, two of the people behind the Metasploit project, which is the world's most used penetration t- penetration testing software. Uh, Trevor, Egypt, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So we're here to talk Metasploit. We're here to talk InfoSec. We're here to talk open source. Lots of interesting topics uh, out there, but first, Let's let the audience get to know you guys a little bit. And Trevor, I'll start with you because we met at GopherCon, which is a bit of a theme lately. I feel like that conference was quite a boon to our to our podcast because we lined up a lot of new friends and a lot of guests for the show.
2: Um, yeah, I can imagine it was it was a great con. It was one of my one of my all time favorite cons that I went to. Um, so my name is Trevor Rosen. I work um, at Rapid Seven on Metasploit as the leader of the architecture team. Uh, which is um, a small team, kind of mostly software-oriented people um, who work all different areas of the Metasploit framework and the Metasploit commercial applications. Um, So Metasploit framework is this uh, sort of famous thing in the information security world. Um, It's been around for a little over 10 years, and it exists basically to help you um, help penetration testers, which is like kind of good guy hackers, good person hackers, I should say, um, white hats, help determine uh, what a, an organization's level of exposure is to security threats. And um, so I get to work in all different areas of, of our stacks on all sorts of uh, fun open source stuff, mostly Ruby software and, and quite a bit of stuff in the Rails ecosystem. Um, and I'm not really a, a full-time security person in that I don't do security research really, but I definitely have a lot of fun working on open source and I'm a big fan of um, what open source can be for the for the security world. I feel like it's really vital.
1: So did you, were you always in security side of things, or did you start off as a programmer? What's kind of your background?
2: Yeah, background is mostly software. Um, I've done a bunch of different startups and things. Uh, I always kind of had a soft spot for security, though. I was I was the guy on the team that was like, you know, in mapping everything on our production boxes and um, finding open ports and, you know, hearing ops guys about that or, or, you know, trying to hack my, my dev environment Yeah, for, fun. for sure. Yeah, and then, I mean, back in the day as a kid, um, I may or may not have, built some hardware that wasn't 100% legal um but uh yeah I these days mostly sort of I would say I fall onto the um the maker side of things and I mean by that not like make magazine but sort of like um security the security software world kind of has people who are interested in sort of breaking stuff and hacking it and figuring out the how to make it do something crazy or or weird um and then people who are much more interested in sort of just making good software Uh so um that's really where I, I guess I would put myself as kind of more on the maker end of the spectrum.
1: That's an interesting way to put it because I I came to a similar conclusion, as I was telling you uh, in the pre-call, I do have a bit of a security background, uh, studied information assurance as a concentration um, in college and was doing penetration testing and, and mapping stuff like crazy, which was like one of my favorite things to do. Um, but I too kind of, I found myself after that deciding i'd rather create things than tear them down i also wasn't that good at it i don't have that like mindset i'm sure you guys are well aware in egypt maybe you're one of these kind of people where like you can just find a way to break everything i was like okay at it but i didn't have like that that intuition that some folks have um and i do like creating so i can kind of relate with you a little bit there let's move on to james who i've been told not to call that i've been called his name's (laughs) egypt uh but James Egypt Lee. Um you wanna go ahead and introduce yourself to the crowd?
3: Yeah, um I'm Egypt pretty much everywhere. Um and I'm Egypt on Twitter, etc. Um I'm the Metasploit community manager here at Rapid Seven. Um and that means that I'm writing a lot more emails than code these days. Oh man. Uh, at least for the last couple of months. Um but I'm, I'm sort of involved in, in open source contributions and getting people interested in the project, um, as well as uh, fixing the, the old bugs in, in code that, that no one else has looked at in years. Um, so I started with the project in uh, roughly 2006. I started using it professionally um, as, of, as the thing I was writing my exploits in, uh, working as a security researcher. Um, And I found bugs and and problems and things that just didn't work the way I wanted them to. So I started submitting patches. Um, And around 2008, um, H.D. Moore, the founder of the project, decided that it was easier to give me commit access than to keep taking all my patches all the time. So in 2008, I got commit access to the then Subversion repository um, and broke master with my first commit. Oh, you are a breaker then. uh, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. So what happened? What happened there?
1: Tell us about that.
3: Uh, well, I, I with every everything I committed for the first couple of months, um, you know, I would miss some edge case, and it would make the the main interface not boot up, or you know, something stupid like mm. that. Well, um, the
2: framework was not overburdened with you know regression tests back at that time either. So, right, it's hard to give yeah, you too it, much blame.
3: the the account of the count of regression tests at that point was zero. Um, and remained so for quite a bit longer. Um, regression testing has been a, uh, an ongoing issue for uh. us. Um, but, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time um, fixing bugs just to make it um, possible to do some of the evil things that I was trying to do at the time, uh, and that got me in the door with the project. Uh, and then in 2009, when the acquisition came about, I was m- basically the first... Hire onto the new the newly minted Metasploit team. Um, So I wrote most of the um, or a lot of at least the the back end code for the original Metasploit commercial product. Um, I spent a lot of time there working on the commercial edition as well as the open source stuff. Um, And in the time that I've been working at Rapid Seven, something north of eighty percent of all my code has been open source. So that's super uh, super helpful. Um, it really adds to the job satisfaction to see my code is going out open source. Um, and it also allows me to interact with, uh, a very diverse group of, of hackers putting together exploit modules and, and, you know, kicking sandcastles and licking cupcakes as we do in the metasploit world.
1: Say that again, kicking sandcastles and licking cupcakes.
3: Yeah, cuz that's what you do when you break into a network, right? You're not in there saying, you know, everything is sunshine and rainbows. Yeah. You're 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 ruining someone's day. <laughs> and you have to do it you have to do it nicely. So
2: it's all about Imagine a tray of cupcakes and somebody runs over and licks all of them before anyone gets to eat them. That w- That's what it is to lick cupcakes.
1: That's that is incredibly rude. <laughs> but nice for you cuz yeah. you get you gotta taste the cupcakes. I guess <laughs> that's right. Uh, it is kind of fun, right, when you find your way in. Well, let's let's not uh, bury the lead here. Let's talk about this name, Egypt.
3: Ah, yes, it, it originated as a um, a nickname in college, based on my appearance.
1: So, do you look Egyptian?
3: I guess
2: so. <laughs> no, you don't.
3: Pyramid, pyramidal.
1: I, I guess. Yeah, I'm not really not I, sure. I don't not know. Sure. I had a goatee at okay. the time. So you look a little bit like an Egyptian pharaoh or something. I suppose. And so friends started calling you Egypt and it just stuck? And it just stuck. Trevor, where's your awesome handle?
2: Oh, gosh. Yeah. I don't know. I don't really have one. I don't, ha- um, I don't have one either. No, I'm I'm Burly Scud on IRC with two Ds and always have been. Um, points to anybody out there in the audience who knows what that's a reference to. Burly Scud. Burly um, yeah, cuz I've had one person in all the times ever figured out, but it's it's not super hard, it's just kind of kind of obscure. Um but yeah, I don't have don't have a super awesome handle. Um I spend I spend a lot of my time uh, spent a lot of my time since I've been at Rapid7 um kind of uh managing and, and wrangling cats and being involved in the uh, in the sort of the ongoing discussions about, you know, how we can do the next thing or whatever, that kind of thing. Sure. So I um, sort of st- stumbled backwards into like um software as politics almost i guess you'd say
1: so tell me a little bit about rapid seven as far as the company uh, the culture kind of what it is that they do and then that maybe just intro the relationship to the metasploit uh framework
2: sure um so rapid seven is a security company a security software firm it's been around um since about 2000 2001 so um Pretty long time, um, actually an unusually long time for for a you know what was usually termed a startup to to go um, from from its in- inception um, through to the IPO that we had this past summer. Um, but it's um, a firm that had been um, prior to Metasploit working um, in the vulnerability management space. Um, you can think of a of a vulnerability scanner, I guess, and sort of security people in the audience might jump on me for this, but kind of roughly analogous to like a a virus scanner for networks or something like in that, like a, a virus scanner kind of scans your machine for a bunch of like known problems mm-hmm. that it has, or, or sort of patterns of, of, uh, of activity that could be suspicious. Um, a vulnerability scanner is going to scan like a lot of, uh, network endpoints, a whole lot of machines on a network, um, and try to determine what kind of exposure exists there. So that product is called Nexpose and that's like a rapid seven sort of large long time, um, product that we've had. And, um, they're, Back whenever they decided, and it predated my my time with the company, to acquire the Metasplate project, um, it was sort of along the lines of, okay, we understand a certain, you know, we have kind of half of the equation here in that we're um, showing we're doing vulnerability management, we're doing vulnerability scanning, um, and so that's that's defensive security, right? That's um, figuring out what what your your problems are from a kind of like scanning the the, the Equipment you have perspective and then trying to patch it. But then on the other side of that is like, well, what could you do? What could a, what could an attacker do? What could a sufficiently empowered attacker do? And, um, so Metasploit has, has always existed to help empower, um, people who are attacking because they're, they're being paid to, um, and it's you know paid by the company they're attacking, hopefully. Um, and so the idea was sort of we can make a commercial product um, around that essential notion, that offensive techno, that offensive security um, sort of stance and concept, and it will be complementary to um, the the existing product they have. Um, and Metasploit is also a pretty big name. Um, if you go to like insecure.org and you look at the, um, the SEC tools, 100, you know, top top 100 um, open source security tools, um, Metasploit um, has, for as long as I've known about Metasploit, which is uh, since significant amount of time before I started at Rapid7, so probably since about 06 or 07, uh, Metasploit was in like the top five or top 10. Yeah. Um, now I believe it's like number two or three on the list, like right after like Wireshark and Nmap or something, right? So it's regarded the framework, the open source tool, as a, um, a, a very essential piece of kit. A very widely known, widely used, widely used thing. So, um, Rapid7's kind of overall idea is that there's a lot of insight to be gained from um, really approaching security as a matter of finding the right data, finding the the right insights that you can um, into into what the actual threats are. Because quite a bit of security tools just produce um, incredible quantities of data but not a whole lot of actionable information about what you should do with that data. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, our our um, our leadership likes to say that that you know, for a long time quite a bit of the security space is predicated on this idea of essentially kind of monetizing fear. It's like, "Hey, here's a bunch of things to be terrified of. Okay, what do I do about them?" Uh, yeah. Here's the big phone book sized pile, figure it out. Right? right? But we want to we want to go beyond that. That's that's really the the Way that rapid seven wants to operate as we go beyond that to provide sort of much more in like much more in-depth and immediately actionable kind of insight so um we have in addition to nexpos and to the metasploit commercial editions um we also have um this really interesting product uh, called user insight and um user insight you can think of almost as sort of like an intrusion detection system for user behavior so instead of kind of saying like hey what what types of data are traversing my firewall on what ports, et cetera, et cetera? You can kind of instead you can you can turn on its head and ask the question like, what are users doing right now, and is that okay? And can you use heuristics to understand like, hey, today Jared accessed. 12 servers that he's never touched before, mm-hmm. you know, um, is that strange, right? And and a traditional intrusion detection system might not know about that because it might just be focusing on the perimeter. Like, is, is you know, are, is some unauthorized person getting in right. or is some particular high-value data getting out? Um, so user insight, again, it's that, that idea of being able to sort of look at um, security from a slightly different perspective and say, you know, can we, can we dr- change our perspective a little bit but dramatically increase the value of the insight that we're producing? Mm-hmm. Um, so... I guess that's kind of Rapid7 in a nutshell. I, I think you, if spawned, a product I, to you that. spawned a
1: product idea, um, which I'll give you this one to, for free. So tell your friends at Rapid7, like, no big deal. They can thank me later. It's a scanner, but it just scans your office, or the, scans every monitor to see if anybody has written their password down on a yellow sticky note and then stuck it to their monitor.
2: Ooh, what do you think about that, like that. that's real yeah, yeah, that's yeah. real
1: user user interactions do you
2: mind if i go ahead and just like start the patent application right now as like long, long as you long
1: guys go. give me a shout out or if all just, right just, sure uh, you know one percent of your first billion something like that <laughs> deal. so you I'll
3: know honestly honestly I would, I would prefer people write their password down somewhere and put it in their wallet rather than then uh, leave it in passwords.xls on their desktop
1: yep. good point or just Use one password, not one password of the application, but like literally a single password for you know everything that they do. So nothing
2: bad ever came of that. Yeah, exactly.
1: On the other side of that coin, you have uh, companies enforcing ridiculously onerous password <laughs> policies, uh, which require their users to subvert them on a regular basis <laughs> and come up with all sorts of things. Right,
3: and those ridiculous password policies lead to like the top four uh, passwords in every single organization are. Summer followed by the year, yes. winter followed by the year, spring followed by the year, right. fall followed by the year. They are in the top 10 on every organization.
1: So is there, is there a future for us to just be rid of passwords altogether? Is there, is there a, a light at the end of that tunnel uh, as an industry or not?
3: I don't see it. Like, I really want to, but I don't see it. Um, we've moved towards two-factor authentication mm-hmm. or multi-factor authentication um, but it's so spotty and the support for it is so spread out that most of the time as a pen tester, you know, you get around, you walk all over the network, you kick those sand castles and lick those cupcakes, and at the end of it, you go and give the report and they say, Oh, well, what'd you do about our two factor auth? I didn't know you had it. I'm sorry. Right. Hmm.
1: So before we get into Metasploit. Uh, the details of history and all that. Let's talk about penetration testing as a thing. Um, we've mentioned it a few times here. Um, but maybe Egypt, could you give us kind of uh, a general definition, and then maybe even like what does a security audit looks like from a comp- if somebody hires a company like Rapid seven. There's a lot of these firms out there that will do it for you. What's the process? What's it about, and kind of what are the results?
3: Right. So I don't have a lot of insight into the like sales side sure. of it, like who you call and talk sure. to. But I can tell you from the penetration tester side, um, you know, a penetration tester is given uh, someone to talk to as their point of contact, and they usually have a list of IP addresses that are in scope, and don't touch anything outside of those IP addresses. Um, and sometimes, though, the scope will be really restrictive and say, you know, you're only allowed to look at this web app, and you're only allowed to look for cross-site scripting. Uh, You're not allowed to look for SQL injection and that sort of thing. And that gets really limiting and you end up with a report that's not very useful. Uh, But sometimes you get a broader scope. Um, You're allowed to look for more things. You're allowed to take more actions. Uh, And hopefully those are on um, not necessarily production networks, but something that like if it falls over, you don't lose every customer's data, et cetera, et cetera. Uh Um, But a lot of times... Uh, a penetration test is, is just a week or two weeks long, which means a very compressed time scale for an attacker. Uh, a real attacker is going to have months. Right. right? And, a, and a penetration tester is going to have a week or maybe two weeks. And one of those days is going to be for reporting. So they really only have four days. Um, and you start out, sometimes it's acceptable to scan beforehand, and that saves a lot of time. So uh, as a penetration tester because of this compressed time scale, you need to find stuff as quickly as possible and identify it as quickly as possible because you're looking at a lot of data. So if you have uh, a thousand IP addresses that you need to check out, um, you wanna scan those as quickly as possible and it's gonna be super noisy. And so for example, if there's a firewall in the way or an IPS in the way that says, oh, this is a port scan and then blocks your access, mm-hmm. now suddenly that scan is basically invalid. So that happens pretty frequently. Um, and assuming that those roadblocks don't come up, uh, you do your scan, you find out what's available. Usually there's a whole bunch of static HTML, there's a whole bunch of web applications and not a whole lot else on the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally you'll find the you know the golden FTP server with uh, all of the company's financials on it open anonymously to the public, but that doesn't happen terribly often. Um, uh, I did find a domain controller on the public internet once, so that was fun. Um, but fortunately, that doesn't happen frequently anymore. Um, so then you do, your, you do your external scans, you find all of the things. Um, if, if there are a bunch of web applications out there, you spend some time fuzzing input, you look at a thing called burp suite, which allows you to muck around with, with HTTP headers and values. Uh, It makes it really easy to fuzz some stuff and to examine responses. Um, There are a number of other tools in that same vein, uh, but Burp Suite is kind of the de facto standard for screwing around with HTTP.
1: When you say fuzz some stuff, Uh, can you elaborate on that?
3: Yeah, uh, basically just throwing uh, values that might break an application. Hmm. Um, So in the case of if you're looking at a C application, uh, an application written in C, you would be throwing large... uh, large strings because they might overflow a buffer. In the case of a web application, you might be throwing uh, various kinds of quotes to to escape something out of uh, a SQL statement. Uh Uh, So those sorts of things. Uh, Just trying inputs that are probably bad given the application, uh, hoping for a crash or some aberrant behavior. Um, And so once you you get through that step, um, occasionally you'll end up with... uh, external access via something like uh, a SQL injection or a command injection on a web application, uh, and then you start the whole process over again and you scan the internal network. Uh, a lot of, of external uh, engagements require that once you get inside, all everything stops until you talk to your point of contact. Mm-hmm. That's pretty common, uh, which sort of makes sense from the from the customer's perspective, because you as, as the person running the network, you wanna know when there's a big vulnerability that lets someone into the DMZ or into the production environment. You want to know that as soon as possible. Um, And you also don't necessarily want a penetration tester uh, running around rampant on your production uh, internal network. So a lot of times everything stops, comes to a dead end right there, um, and you call up your point of contact and and tell them the bad news. there is also, like, social engineering campaigns um, where you send out a whole bunch of emails and inevitably someone is going to run the executable. Um, uh-huh. And that gets you usually corporate network access. And again, the thing starts all over again. Now, uh, as a penetration tester or as any attacker, really you're looking to expand your influence. So if I'm coming in from the outside, I'm looking to gain access to uh, either data through SQL injection or possibly shell access through command injection or other sorts of things. Um, and uh, if I'm sending in a phishing email and looking to expand my influence, instead of into the DMZ, into the corporate network, uh, usually there's all sorts of information in there that's, that's company sensitive, that you really wanna get a, uh, a hold of. Um, the crown jewels are always on somebody's desktop though, uh, or some file share that's available to everyone in the company. Um, most of the time you're not dealing with exploits. You know, I'm, yeah, when I I I'm sending and when I'm talking to a web app on the external, I'm creating my own exploits for the most part. You know, most of those things are custom apps.
1: That's what I was going to ask: is if you are targeting specific, you know, endpoints on a network that, that are public facing, they're usually web apps, and are you just fuzzing those, or are you actually, you know, inspecting the application and? Saying, hmm, I th- I think this might not this might not be checked, or this could be injectable, and like trying different things by hand, or if you're only using these these tools.
3: Sure, both of the, both of those for sure. Um, I mean, in some cases, like you can fuzz a few things and find a couple of interesting responses, and say, oh, this is probably an injection, and then you'll dive deeper manually. I see. Um, with other things, like it at least when I first started doing penetration testing, every login form was vulnerable to SQL injection. So the first thing you do is put tick or one equals one into the login form and you get admin. So fortunately that's not nearly as common anymore.
1: And then what do you do? Um, You just go, you just go to lunch or something. You're like, well, we're done for the day. (laughs) You know, the point of contact and, and uh, you're done.
3: No, from, from that point you go in looking for credit cards and, and social security numbers. Mm. Uh,
1: you want to lick all. You want to which, all the cupcakes, huh? Exactly. So, I mean, one thought that comes to mind, and maybe it's just because it's too expensive, but if they're trying, the point of this is to, you know, give us a reasonable idea of maybe not even how secure our, our network is, but how insecure it is. I think you can, you know, you can guarantee an insecurity, whereas you can't guarantee a security, which is kind of the troublesome part of the business, I think. But um, if they're trying to be as real world as possible. You know, a black box. Here's an outsider with a few IP addresses, which is what, how you know people start. Why do they limit you to four days? Just because it costs too much to pay you to to keep hacking them for four months, or or what?
3: Yeah, that's generally the thing. Cost is 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 the deciding factor in a lot of those decisions.
1: Huh. I guess that makes sense. Well, one tool that you use, I'm sure, is Metasploit. We're going to take a quick break here from one of our sponsors. And then we're going to d- dig into all the details of Metasploit, what it is, what it does, and why it's useful and why it's so stinking popular. We'll be right back.
0: You've heard me talk about TopTile several times in this podcast, but today is different. I've got a special treat for you. I went out and spoke with a listener who a year ago had never heard of top towel. He listened to the show just like you're doing right here, right now, today, and heard us talk about TopTile and what they're all about. And he decided to get in touch. And now he's living the dream as a freelance software developer with TopTal. His name is Daniel Elzon. And I sat down and I talked with him. I said, hey, what is it that you love most about TopTal?" Take a listen.
1: Well, for me, the, the thing about TopTal, which I thought would be very hard for me personally as I transitioned to a more consulting role, uh, was the, the way I would have access to new clients and what quality of those would be. So I found that I've had access to awesome clients through TopTal and it hasn't been that hard to find because they have a lot of choice. And even more than that, uh, there's enough choice and I I can actually be a little selective about what kinds of things I want to be working on. So I use that as a way to sort of hone my skills and, you know, go towards the technology that I think are are worth investing in for the future. So whether it's, you know, including new front-end frameworks or, Doing a little DevOps work on the side, I, I, I usually am able to find clients who are uh, have the needs of the things I want to get better at. So that's been that's been uh, truly useful.
0: All right, that was Daniel Lazan, a listener of the Change Log, and also a freelance software developer with TopTal. If you want to follow in Daniel's footsteps, go to toptal.com/developers. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com/developers to learn more about what TopTal is all about and tell them the changelog sent you.
1: All right, we are back, and we are talking about a framework called Metasploit. I'd like to get into the history because it's been around a while. It's massively popular, and uh, I even recall it from my youngster days at college. Um, Trevor, you mentioned Wireshark and Nmap. Those were definitely tools exposed to us. I think Wireshark was called something different back then. It was like, ethereal. ethereal, thank you. And I always thought that was a silly name. Wireshark's a pretty cool name, though. Um, anyhow, Metasploit was a thing that you know we used. So uh, that was back in 2005, 2006. So um, as much as you know, kind of give us a little bit of a history of the project. I know we've talked a little bit about it, but let's recap and, and when y'all got involved.
3: Yeah, so it uh, started out as a game. Um, HD Moore, uh, our founder, created it as the game you can play on any network, um, and it was a, originally an Ncurses GUI. Really? For yeah, uh, and it, it had one. It started out with one exploit. It was the uh, Apache chunked encoding overflow. And I remember it well. You had a, yeah, you had the um, a, a class C network block. Uh, as individual pixels, and whenever you compromise the machine, one of the pixels would turn red.
1: That's awesome.
3: Uh, yeah, it was super cool, uh, but not very useful at <laughs> the time. Yeah. Uh, so it got it got it was originally in Perl. It got rewritten uh, in basically an entire rewrite when uh, HD picked up a couple of contributors, M and Scape. Um, Scape later went on to Microsoft and created a whole bunch of mitigation technologies that made exploitation a heck of a lot harder uh, in terms of memory corruption. Um, so the project went on without him and went on without Spoon. And around uh, 2005, 2006, um, I started using it for um, for writing my own exploits. Uh, and it was at about that time when Scape and Spoonin left. And um that's that's when it started moving towards uh Ruby, uh, where it, it had originally in Perl had a, a EULA-like license to prevent uh some of the um blatant corporate misuse uh that had been going on mm-hmm. with it. Um and when when it moved to Ruby, uh it maintained that license for a little while. Um shortly after I got commit access, um, we changed the license to BSD. So now it's real full fledged open source. Um, and you can do anything you want with it. But the, uh, the great thing about that is that we get, um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 unique authors on commits, uh, every year for the last two to three years. Nice. Um, so that's, that's really cool. And a lot of them are only a single commit, um, which is great because it means that someone new is coming in and saying, you know, here is some thing that I see missing or or some functionality that I want to have. And so they write it up and they submit it to it as, as a pull request. Um, and then they go about their business and they, they continue using the, the tool and, and, and breaking into networks with it. Um, but, you know, they've, they've contributed something that 200,000 people use, uh, which really, really makes me happy that, that we can that we can get that kind of contribution from, from so many unique people.
2: It is really cool to see, I got to say, like, and one thing that I'll add to that that is something I think Drew has, has drawn a lot of people who work on it full time to the project is that um, Metasploit is now, um, because it's been around and, and, you know, when it first started, it was sort of controversial, like, oh, we're going to actually publish these exploits, right? We're going to create this sort of Library of malware. Um, well, now it's that that notion um, where it was sort of very scary and, and controversial when it first started um, is is now pretty well understood and is pretty well accepted. Um, even to the point where I think it was in an article in uh, 2012, um, the New York Times referred to us as um, a sort of early warning system for malware. Um, and I've kind of always liked that that notion of what Metasploit can be. It's sort of like you know if you're vulnerable to something in Metasploit. Um, you're doing it wrong because we're, we're not generally going to be publishing things that um, have no mitigation available. I mean, there, there are going to be times when we do that, but it's specifically to help put pressure on vendors and create a good outcome for all of the huge numbers of people who are going to be vulnerable to some given um, software flaw.
3: And, and when we do that, um, usually if we publish something that has no patch or has no uh, uh, vendor response yet, it's because it's already being exploited in the wild.
2: Exactly. Yeah. One of my favorite examples is also, um, I believe from 2012, from late in 2012, um, I'll get the dates and timing wrong, but, um, there was a, a large vulnerability in, um, pretty much every browser. Um, there was the way that like the bridge of, from JavaScript to Java that was available so that like, you know, in 2005, you could go to like Yahoo games and play Bejeweled online or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, that that kind of like java applet sort of loading directly through javascript kind of bridge thing was called rhino um and there was this major major flaw that that was being exploited in the wild and that was giving um you know remote code execution like the holy grail um to whoever was was doing these attacks and these attacks were being weaponized in this real sort of compact kind of drive by form right so you click the wrong web link and bam you're owned um, so this is terrible. And it, it, it was estimated to affect over 750 million computers. Um, and we were uh, in, we you know, we maintained a, a disclosure program at Rapid7. One of our colleagues does. And so that involves a lot of sort of, like, you know, closed-door conversations with the security researchers who have found a vulnerability and want to, to do responsible disclosure of that vulnerability. Um, and these researchers had disclosed um, to the maintainers of Java, Oracle, Um, already. They had done it um, that that spring, right? So um, by the late summer or so, it had been like significant amount of time that they had, since they had disclosed with Oracle. Um, And then they came to us because I guess we had a little bit more of a megaphone or whatever. And um, we disclosed uh, again with them. um, And Oracle came back and said, you know, we needed like a really long time to patch this. I can't remember the exact amount of time, but I believe it was something like a year or 18 months um, to affect this patch.
3: yeah, at the time, Oracle's patch cycle was eighteen or was uh, six months, and they wouldn't guarantee a patch on anything uh, fewer than two cycles out.
2: Right. So, so you're looking at potentially like a year and a half before you're going to see anything on this. Right. And, and you know, and and Metasploit was in a position to basically say, "As we don't care, we don't believe that that's an acceptable thing." Like, you, you know, um, you bought. You bought Sun, you've got Java. It's your thing now, and um you know your your product is is vulnerable in in this enormous number of computers. so um we were we we published the exploit, and um I believe that, that Oracle had a patch out. Um, if I recall correctly, it was like three days, but it was certainly less than a week later. They had a patch version of Java, and now Java, as you as you know, there's a kind of this spate, or you might remember, around this time of a whole bunch of bugs in sort of this general area of things, a whole bunch of vulnerabilities. And now um, I believe that on I know that on OS X and on Windows, I believe pretty much anywhere you can think of, if you're going to install a browser, that browser is no longer going to have a hard dependency on Java. Um, and if you want to do some Java stuff, you're going to need to go ahead and, and you know, um, install it yourself in the case of, of like OS 10, or I'm not 100 percent certain how it works on on Windows right now. But, you know, Java used to just be like a dependency and just kind of just there right. and nobody really thought anything of it. Um, but, you know, th- th- that's that's one of my favorite examples of Metasplate putting um, very significant pressure on a very large vendor and getting a really, really positive outcome out of it
1: man that's that's interesting there's so many different avenues i could go off of that because we have the licensing aspect you have kind of the the script kiddies idea you have the balancing act that you guys have to be participating in of what do we include in what is out so um whenever you wield a tool that's powerful like metasploit it can be used for good it can be used for bad this is where we kind of get the idea of white hat hackers black hat hackers um gray hats which that was a thing back in 2006 i'm not sure do people still use that term yeah i
3: okay. still think.
1: just making sure um what's it mean i don't remember like you're kind of doing both you're just well, you're,
3: you're... well the funny thing about white you put a little black in it and then no matter how much more white you put on top it's always going to be. also
1: oh, like you have a history Is that what it means yeah. i see so Pretty it's like black right. hat turned white yeah. maybe I don't know. that's where the intrigue comes in That's where.
3: A white, hat's the, a white hat that's not necessarily entirely... Got you, real. got you.
1: Okay, so you got those people. Um, and, man, there's just a lot of actors, there's a lot of interested parties, and then we have this idea of a script kitty. Egypt, you want to kind of explain what that is, perhaps, and then maybe address um, Metasploit's history with, with these type of people?
3: Yeah, that's an interesting term. Script kitty...
1: Is that still a term? Maybe I'm dating myself. It okay. is a term. Okay. It
3: definitely is. It still exists. and people still Did you hate use that it. term? Um, but I, I, did, I just don't think it has the meaning that it okay. used to. It doesn't have, have the, the weight that it used to because it used to mean that there was a script kitty was someone who used other people's scripts and didn't have the skill to write their own, couldn't write right. their own exploits. Um, but the fact is today you don't have to write your own exploits because there are just so many things out there. Um, You know, you don't need to know the intricate details of a particular heap allocator on this operating system because most exploits, most things that get you data that let you steal credit cards are going to be SQL injection. I've seen 12 year olds bust out SQL injections and steal stuff like you. You don't need to be super deep into all the details of how an operating system works to steal data.
1: Mm. So I'm saying it's just getting even easier.
3: Right, and and that's not because exploitation has gotten easier. It's because the kind of bugs that are prevalent these days are different. Uh. Um, you know, there's still a lot of memory corruption vulnerabilities, but they've gotten exponentially more difficult to exploit. So I mentioned Scape's work with Microsoft with um, SEH medications. SEH is the structured exception handler, which was sort of a generic way to um, allow a buffer overflow on the stack to give you code execution. And that basically killed an entire class of bugs because of that mitigation. And it's no longer generically exploitable to overflow a buffer on a stack in a Windows application. So, you know, SEH protections, in, in addition to stack cookies and other general exploit mitigations on, on uh, memory corruption issues in Windows have made those sorts of bugs very difficult to exploit. You know in, in 1999, writing a buffer overflow required uh, staring at a debugger and reading a lot of manuals and figuring out how right. it worked. Um, and when you were done, you had you know maybe 10 lines of exploit code and it took you a couple of days. Now if you want to exploit something uh, in a modern browser so say for example in flash, um, you have to understand how the ActionScript bytecode compiler works in Flash, and then you have to understand the heap allocator, how that works, and then you have to understand all of the pieces of uh, every other little thing that is necessary to control memory in that application. It's a huge thing, and there's a lot of stuff uh, that gets in your way. And there are some techniques that make it a little easier Um But in general, memory corruption is going the way of the Dodo. Um, With 64-bit operating systems becoming more and more uh, prevalent, basically all your desktops are going to be 64-bit now. Um, So many of those things are just going away. But you have things like SQL injection, and you have command injection, and you have just passwords lying around on passwords.xls on somebody's desktop. So. So saying someone is a script kitty for not writing their own exploits, I just don't think has the weight that it used to. Um, there's, there are a lot of ways of getting into a system. There's a lot of ways of stealing data that don't involve writing your own memory corruption exploit. Sure. Um, and I, I think it, it's, it's giving short shrift to the, the attackers who are very clever, but not necessarily... Um, savvy in the ways of how an operating system works.
1: But can't we um, don't we just change the focus to web, web applications then and you can still, you know, let's take, for instance, now that the vector becomes uh, Ruby on Rails, just for instance, keep it in the Ruby camp, of course, sure. Django, whatever, a web framework now. And some security researcher, say a black hat, finds a flaw in Ruby on Rails. Um, it took perhaps a large amount of... In, wisdom to do that. Maybe it was an easy one. Um, Isn't that the kind of exploit that would end up inside of Metasploit, and then me, having no knowledge of that whatsoever, can just point it at a machine and run it?
2: Well, it has, but I mean, you would also have to find you would, you would need the skill to find a machine that was that was vulnerable to that right. You would need to be able to dig that out of um you know the the sort of enormous that that needle out of the enormous like haystack of of kind of what the the modern you know modern large companies or even small companies um like attack surface looks like, uh-huh. and then you would need to understand what to do once you've delivered that exploit right. So, I mean it, you know Egypt's point is is really well taken here. I mean we we talk a lot with a, obviously like a lot of big deal pen testers, Mm -hmm. um, guys who are on, you know, red teams for like fortune 50 companies and stuff like that, who get paid to do nothing but try to break into these enormous, enormous companies that do really big deal things. And these guys will tell you that they've literally used exploits like once or twice in like a decade or a dozen years long career. Um, just simply because it's just easier than that out there, you know? And, you know, to Egypt's point from before, I mean, we take a look and we, we watch, um, what's going on in terms of what's exploited in the wild. And then we make an effort to uh, make sure that that we are able to kind of follow along with that and have something in in Metasploit that exploits something in that same way mm-hmm. um but you know a lot of people are tempted to think of this, and I think that this is really um you can blame you can blame media for this, right? A lot of people look at this stuff and they're like, oh, you're a hacker, you have these magic powers. Metasploit is this collection of magic skeleton keys. All I need to do is install it, and then suddenly you know i can I can just wave a wand and like you know break into people i mean. That's just false. I mean, I, most people probably don't think about it, but it's it's probably easier to hack the average corporation, almost certainly, of any size, than it is to hack an individual person, just simply because yeah, there's absolutely. so much out there right. that the, the, what they call the attack area. surface exactly. is so large. Right. Right, and you've, and you've got, you know, years and years of, of IT guys that have installed random stuff on there or have put local admin on a particular Windows machine and da, da 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 And, you know, there's attrition, people leave jobs, people forget what they installed, people, you know, just kind of leave things around as business moves forward. Um, so, you, you know, even if somebody could, say, find, um, to just extend your example, find a Rails application that's vulnerable to, like, the YAML injection remote code execution bug from a couple years right. ago. And they can get you to, you know, they can they can use that that exploit. Well, I mean, Metasploit has provided a a bit of code for that and has provided um, you know, a very very useful mechanism for interactivity with a, a nice little shell and for delivering a payload um to, to be able to do something useful with that access. But what then? You know, I mean in the classic formulation of a script kitty is somebody who's just sort of like, you know praying and spraying and just seeing what happens. Right. Um, but then what then? If that person actually knows how to, you know, move laterally through the network and steal a bunch of useful data, can you really call that person a script kitty anymore? I mean, um, like a you know, the, teenager. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, these, these people, you know, I think that the term itself, while it still gets used, mm-hmm. um, and even used at our expense indirectly on Mr. Robot, um, go look for the, um, don't, no spoilers no spoilers I haven't, I haven't right watched exactly it yet. sorry guys um but uh yeah i mean it, you know it's it just it the the era i think of people being able to be like accidentally very damaging um is kind of um i don't know how and I, I don't know how legitimate that is anymore i mean um it's information security right so there's always like caveats and and long tails of problems out there and uh, you know there's there's all kinds of things that are horribly insecure that are made directly available to the internet um atms being a fantastic example um but you know
3: which are all running windows xp
2: yeah which doesn't get security updates anymore so be afraid um yeah, it's just not a. I I don't know how how useful it is as like a a genuine critique of the people who are actually trying to use a particular thing.
1: Yeah, and um, I'm not I'm not necessarily critiquing. I'm trying to understand as as somebody who's involved, you know, at, at, with the project, is you have people using it for good and you have people using it for bad, and some of those concerns, you know, have to maybe not weigh on you, but th- things that you're actively thinking about when you decide if an exploit's going to go in. When it's going to go in, in the case of your Oracle example, you know, that was something that you used it as leverage to get them to act, um, which ended up being a great win, right? That was a success story. But what if they would have just been like, well, screw you guys. We're going home now. I mean, effectively, okay, it's their fault, not yours. But now you've given that vulnerability, that exploit out to. Well, but that attitude
2: assumes that like we had that and other people. That's true. And that we, you know, and that's they could get out there in a different way. Well, it's already out there. That's what you need to always remember. It's already out there. We we put this in because we're able to do some monitoring of various forums and whatnot, and we're able to see, like, People you know, have these it. types of things yeah. are getting exploited already out there, right? Like, keep in mind that the, the crime war kits that you would spend a bunch of money on mm-hmm. right now, like, say you're, um, I don't know, you're some bad actor somewhere in the world, and you, you decide to to get on, there's basically, like, a silk road of, like, malware on on tour right you could get on there you could buy um a crimeware kit um which about a thousand bucks bucks. it's beautiful interface it'll come with some stuff that's um you know it's not quite oday because it's in the crimeware kits but you know it's it's not in metasploit either necessarily right i mean like we're we are not like there's this temptation to believe that oh the thing i know about is metasploit and metasploit's got this library of malware in it um, therefore, Metasplate must be filled with awful stuff that can be used to like own computers all over the place, which is really only true if you're not, you know, if you're not patched, right? right. So, the idea that we aren't like completely, um, you know, that we that we're like on the forefront, and if we don't release something, it just won't be out there. That's tempting, but it's totally it's false. not true. The bad guys are going to have this stuff. Fair point. Fair
3: point. Yeah, and and I'd like to point out that um, especially in that rhino case um, it was already being exploited in the wild and that's true of a whole bunch of our exploits already being exploited sometimes in targeted attacks against specific organizations and we make it available for everyone to know what the exploit is doing which significantly lowers the value for a malware author
1: Fair enough. I'm just i stuck back where Trevor said you got a bad actor out there trying to hack something and I just pictured Ben Affleck sitting there at a computer. I don't know. <laughs> <sighs> had to sneak, had a, oh, had so to sneak that one in there. All right, let's take another break here from another one of our sponsors. We'll be back because we haven't talked about Metasploit, the technology very much, how it works, how you contribute, how you use it, those fun things. We know it's built on Ruby, but that's about all that we know at this point. So let's take a quick break and we'll be right back.
0: For those out there working solo or on a team tracking time, you thought you were wrapping up a project until the client or your boss asked for a new feature at the last minute, and here you are stuck. You're not sure how much time you're spending on every feature, how much time you're spending on bug fixes or tweaks. Well, Harvest is a time tracking tool built for understanding where your time is going. And for developers, it takes the pain out of time tracking. Just install the Harvest Chrome extension and you can start tracking time right from issues in Jira or GitHub and you won't have to go searching for your timesheet. Not only will you understand how much time you're spending on client work, you'll also be able to turn your billable hours into an invoice from Harvest in minutes. Harvest integrates with Stripe and PayPal to make sure you get paid fast and on time. There's built-in reporting in Harvest that lets you see how much time your projects took so you can use that information to make better estimates in the future. For a better way to track time and invoice your clients and take the pain out of what you're doing when it comes to tracking time and invoicing, head to GetHarvest.com, create a 30-day free trial, and after your trial's over, here's a goodie for all of our listeners. Enter the code CHANGELOG to save 50% off your first month. Once again, GetHarvest.com, create a free 30-day trial, and after that trial's over, enter the code CHANGELOG for 50% off your first month. Enjoy.
1: All right, we are back, and I want to hear about Metasploit from a technological perspective, the software, how it works. Um, we know it's a Ruby app. We know it used to be Perl. We know it used to be a, a game, and a, a curses based game, which still sounds pretty rad if you ask me. But Egypt, um, can you give us a little bit about the software stack, um, how you even use it, how you install it, and then maybe how you contribute exploits?
3: Okay, so there's the main thing, which is Ruby, um, with uh, a client console interactive um, front-end called MSF Console. That's the Metasploit Framework Console. Um, there are also a number of other standalone tools. Um, MSF Venom is our payload generator. Um, we also have a, an assembler shell that allows you to, to assemble x86 and x64 um, uh, assembly into bytecode. Um, all of our payloads are in the, the payload uh, technology that makes sense for that particular target. Uh, so for Windows, it's written in C, um, and our, our uh, flagship payload is called Meterpreter, interpreter, the, the meta interpreter. It allows you to uh, interact with a system like a normal command shell. Um, and in fact, you can drop directly to a CMD shell or a PowerShell shell uh, to talk to a Windows box. Uh, And all of that is written in C with uh, a DLL as the uh, actual payload that gets delivered. Uh, But we also have these things called stagers, which uh, as a result of the way exploits typically work in memory corruption vulnerabilities, you have a small area where you can put your your payload, which is often called shellcode. and that's restricted in size and it's usually restricted in character set as well. So for an example, if your overflow is in like an FTP username, well the at symbol separates the username from the host name. So if your if your payload contains an at symbol, then it's gonna break the parsing and you won't get a uh-huh. shell. So we have we have encoders that get rid of those bad characters and randomize things with an XOR key. Uh, and you can create a small little piece of assembly. That uh, gets executed on the victim machine, and all its all its for is to talk to the attacker machine uh, and grab more code to execute. And that more code to execute is typically a DLL that allows us to do arbitrarily whatever you want. Um, we should so probably explain the, the
2: payload, like like the payload versus exploit sort of dichotomy here for people that that don't understand it. Right.
3: Yeah, that's a good idea. So, um, in general. An exploit takes advantage of a vulnerability. There, there's some bug on a target system um, that that I can take advantage of, so I use an exploit to do that, that's the terminology. The exploit uh, will deliver a payload as part of, of the normal protocol that it speaks to the victim machine. Um, so in an, in like an HTTP example, if this, the server is listening on port 80, I connect up to it on port 80, um, I send, my malicious request, which contains a payload. That payload executes on the victim machine, and then somehow it communicates back to me. Sometimes that's through TCP, uh, sometimes that's HTTP. Um, But either way, the payload is running on the victim machine and it talks to the attacker machine. Uh, And that gives us the, the ability to control that machine, to get it to create new sockets so that we can talk to other machines that it can see inside its own network. Um, so if, if, I'm, if I'm out on the internet and there's a machine on a DMZ, uh, I compromise it and now I can just see all of the other machines on the inside of its network that I wouldn't be able to see from the internet. Um, so an exploit executes a payload. The payload talks to a handler. That's the, the thing on the, on the Ruby side that allows you to interact with it from a user perspective. Um, and from there, you can drop into uh, an interactive shell as well. And, and run commands that will get executed on the target machine. Um, so that's the like general workflow of an exploit. You use an exploit. You set all the options necessary to, to take advantage of that vulnerability. It runs a payload on the target machine. That target machine connects back to you and, and uh, gives you a shell through the handler. Um, and then from there, you commence your post-exploitation activities. And we have a whole bunch of of modules that make post-exploitation easier um, and that make it um, a little more robust in terms of, of the kind of data you can get a hold of. Uh, and one of my favorite things is a tool called Mimi cats that's been integrated into Metasploit. Uh, I'm liking the sound of this. What that, yeah, uh, what that does is it roots around in the memory on a Windows machine Um, and finds all of the the authentication structures inside uh, lsys.exe, which is the the thing that does authentication in Windows, it roots around in its memory using the the Windows debugging API uh, and pulls out the structures that are necessary to do authentication. Uh, And in many cases, it can pull out plain text passwords for everyone who's logged in. Wow.
0: Um,
3: So that's really, really super useful. Um, If you don't get plain text passwords from that, you can still often get NTLM hashes. Um, and if you're if you're at all familiar with the way um, uh, Windows authentication works, uh, an NTLM hash is essentially uh, a password. Oh, this you is my it. favorite thing. We yeah. we
2: gotta talk about this. Like so, yeah. When I first got into information security, like working at, at Rapid7, I started. I kept hearing about pass the hash, pass the hash, um, which sounded you know illegal like a drug yeah. thing or something, right? Exactly, and. Um, it it's kind of astonishing if you've been working in like web application development or something for a long time because what it means is. Um in in Windows authentication, right, and and probably quite a few of the people listening to this podcast, whether they actually ever touch Windows or not, are they're very likely to be dealing with an Active Directory domain controller, right? Like if you have Outlook as your or sure. you know, ex- Microsoft Exchange as like your email solution, right, then a whole lot of things do like single sign-on, right? Right. They, um, they make this happen. So um, what happens in in pass the hash is that the client is actually responsible for creating the hash, as opposed to like in a web application where you take in a plain text password, you run it through your hashing function, you compare that to what you've stored in the database. I mean, hopefully, you know, that's what you're doing, right? Um, that's not what happens. The client itself is actually sending, doing the hashing and sending the hashed data the, over to the the, um, the authentication mechanism. So what you have there is exactly what Egypt just said. Effectively, if you can steal a hash, you can pass it and use it as a password. Hmm. So you, this is the, the basis for a lot of, like, lateral movement through networks, right? I mean, you know, quite a bit of the time you'll find that um, for expediency, back in the day, some IT guy set up five or six machines with local admin access, and that local admin, um, you know, is, is using the same password that all the guys in the IT department knew, and now you can take that same thing and you can you grab that hash and you can pass it around. Um, so, the you know, the one of the many things that you can do with with um, Metasploit after you've compromised the machine, after you have a session on there, is... Um, scrape all different kinds of passwords out of all different kinds of files, right? We have, um, we've got obviously ones to do the classic Windows stuff and, and grab all of those. But then we've also got things like um, stealing a keypass database, if you can find one on the machine, mm-hmm. um, scraping Skype hashes from wherever they're located on whatever tar- type of platform you've just victimized, right? And um, bringing them all and handing them over to offline cracking tools like John the Ripper or something like that. So, you know, um, you can go through and just start running them through a cracker and then hopefully, you know, hours or days later or whatever, you've got a whole bunch of nice passwords that you can start replaying in different places. Um,
3: yeah. And, and in some cases you don't need to do any kind of cracking. Um, so windows has this awesome thing called uh, crypt secure data and crypt on secure data, um, which is the, the API intended specifically for storing secret stuff in windows. Um, but if I'm running as your user, I can encrypt all of the stuff that you have encrypted as that right. user um, so you can just ask ask the operating system, and it'll give you all of those secrets for free,
1: if you have the that user's privileges at the time, right? Exactly. Right. So that's that's fine. So if
3: I'm if I'm running as you, and you can do anything at all without using your password, then I have your password.
1: Well, that doesn't sound very awesome for me. <laughs> so, so let's say that I'm a, a a budding network administrator, or let's say that I'm a app developer with a network that I'm interested in running some of these things against, or maybe I just want to play with it and see what it does. How do you get started with Metasploit? How do you use it as an end user?
3: Uh, well, for an IT admin, I would suggest starting with uh, the community edition, which is a, a the Rails GUI um, that's sort of the basis for our, our commercial editions um, because it gives you a lot of the, the power of the console interface, but it's point and click, and it's got a, a, a less steep learning uh-huh. curve. Um, if you really want to dive into it, the the console does have a slightly higher learning curve, but it does have faster access to some aspects of the framework. Um, it, so I'd say when you're when you're first getting started, community is absolutely the way to go.
2: Yeah, and I would say I would I would say that's that's definitely true. Um, unless unless you're just like you love CLI, you want to dive in on the command line. Um, you know, it's very easy to um, grab the code. Um, there's also we distribute um, we're, with uh, Kali Linux, which is a big um, open source um, sort of penetration testing uh, Linux distribution. Uh-huh. So um, the framework is available like right out of the box right there, along with a bunch of other really fun tools. Pretty much everything that we mentioned um, for the most part on this call. Um, And I would say that also I I personally, when I was getting up to speed on the application when I joined Rapid7, um, I know that some of the content is a little bit out of date, but the No Starch Press book, um, Metasploit Unleashed, um, which was written by a bunch of, um, of sort of longtime uh, contributors and sort of friends of the family. Um, basically a bunch of penetration testing people um, is a really good book just sort of for understanding like how to, how to get started, how to use this, how to kind of like um, get your head around like what the framework does and why it's powerful.
1: Might be a good time to mention that there is, as you guys said, there's a divide between the open source BSD license, Metasploit framework and the, I believe what's called the Metasploit project, which is
2: well, the commercial editions really is what we call them at, at Rapid7. Okay. So, um, right. So we have like like a lot of commercial open source things. We have like a couple different like you know price points with different features turned on or off, mm-hmm. right? Um, the framework is the engine of all of those things, though. So, um, so what's yeah, out- we, we have the. What's com-
1: outside of the framework? What's in the proprietary ones? If-
2: Metasploit Pro contains things. Um, like a Jasper reports based reporting engine. Um, it has a, a whole um, really nice social engineering toolkit that you can use. Um, it's, it. I like to tell people it's sort of like an evil online marketing system in a way, because like you can use it to like create a little website and then like create an email and generate links that are like, you know, that have tags like to, you know, you can upload like an Excel spreadsheet of like all the people in your org. And then you can basically try to fish them and see like, okay, you know, Joe, um, you know, Opened the email, but didn't click on it. Um, Mary didn't even open the email. um, But Frank opened the email, clicked on the link inside it, and then filled out the form on the resulting web app and hit submit, and we stole his creds. So, you know, Frank's got to go for security training or whatever, right? So a bunch of – quite a few of our customers really enjoyed using that. They can kind of like click, click, click. They can clone an existing um, website if they want to or whatever. Wow, so you can can deceive your own employees into – right right a and, bit and, weird. but it, it's it is it is a little weird but at the same time um most of the major breaches that anybody could name off the top of their head for the last couple of years have been what we refer to at Rapid7 as deception based attacks mm-hmm. um so it's very germane like it it really really is and you'd be surprised how many people can fall for this now granted if you're creating one of these things and you've got internal knowledge of the company yeah. You know, you're kind of tempted to sort of go a little bit um, out of the bounds of where you would normally go, just kind of naturally. But um, that's available.
3: Hold on there, hold on there. I think that that insider knowledge isn't always all that inside. Um, So, as an example, the first phishing campaign that I ever did, that I was ever involved with, um, there were there were public rumors about a merger with this company that we were that we were targeting, and another company, and so we sent a phishing email. With a PDF containing an exploit in it. And the, the subject of the email was basically the merger The merger has gone through, and uh, this PDF contains a list of everyone who's getting fired. <laughs>
2: yeah, fair point. Like at that point, I, I don't know whether that's just preying on human yeah, nature that's, or what, but. That's pretty uh,
1: compelling content, right?
3: Right, like who's not going to open
2: that? I would see that as one of the most suspicious things ever to come into my inbox, but maybe that's just me after spending four years on Metasploit.
1: Yeah, I think you're probably pretty unique in that regard. I think,
2: um, but I mean, there's so there's a there are a couple other um, like larger features that are available inside um, inside Pro, and most of those are a bit effectively to help um, people who are kind of in the the security admin space. Um, run a collection of Metasploit content and then do some things and report on what it was able to do um, in a sort of, um, you know, in a nice kind of automated, orchestrated fashion, right? Whereas the the framework is all kind of nitty-gritty, hands-on. You can script it, but, it you know, that's a lot of work to really scale your way up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, versus Pro is going to give you a nice um, GUI interface for dealing with, for instance, maybe you've... Um, you know, maybe you've compromised hundreds of machines at the same time and you want to run you know the same two or three modules on all of those machines and have those that all be part of like one big report or something like that. That's that would be a pain in framework and it's uh, it's very simple in pro. So pro is all about scalability, communication with other people, communicating up to your bosses or your stakeholders, that kind of thing.
1: Very cool. Well, guys, we got to take one more break. I still want to talk about Infosec and open source and the relationship between the two. It seems like, there can be a bit of a divide. Obviously Metasploit is a big uh, success story where you have open source and InfoSec um, and maybe some ideas around how we can bridge those gaps. Uh, And of course, on the other side of the break are awesome closing questions. Um, So stay tuned for that and we will be right back.
0: This week we have a sponsored repo to mention from our friends at Transloadit. Transloadit is a versatile file uploading and encoding service and they've asked us to give a shout out to their open source project, TUS. It's a new open protocol for Resumable, uploads built on top of HTTP. It's simple, it's cheap, and it's available for any language, on any platform, on any network. Supports checksums, parallel uploading of chunks, no more lost cat videos. It's MIT and open source. Some smart minds have collaborated on it, like the author of HTTP 1.1, employees at Google and Yahoo, Vimeo's Director of Engineering, ZeroMQ's creator, and there are implementations being pushed out for all major languages and frameworks. Also, Vimeo has already announced to use this open protocol for their new video uploading services, and the 1.0 of their protocol is nearing completion as we speak. They are calling for a final round of feedback on their pull request, which we'll link up in the show notes before releasing it. So if you're at all interested, go to tus.io, that's T-U-S, .io, or head to the link we mentioned in the show notes to check out that pull request for 1.0's feedback. And now back to the show.
1: All right, we're back. And I think, Trevor, I'll point this one at you because we kind of talked about this briefly at GopherCon. Um, you have these two communities you have the open source developer community, you have the InfoSec community seems like there's some overlap and maybe the actual distinction is kind of the maker community and the breaker community to a certain degree um and it seems like we don't mesh very often can you speak to that
2: yeah, and it's something that I've that I've found curious in, in my my involvement with Metasploit. Um and it's certainly something that, that I think Egypt and I share a desire to to help change that, right? So um you know that's part of why we, we gave our talk at Lone Star RubyCon like a month ago. Um just sort of trying to get people understanding like here are the types of challenges that we tackle that don't necessarily have anything to do with security per se. Um, you know, building a good network client, um you know, dealing with all the the different types of abstractions that your business logic requires of you and things like that, right? These are just programming tasks. Um, And I think that probably what we're really looking at is a historical situation more than anything else, right? So that gives me hope. I don't think that there's anything inherent or intrinsic that makes it difficult for people to spend any time on this um, other than just, historically I think a lot of people who are developers maybe haven't spent a lot of time um, thinking about how executables are structured mm-hmm. or thinking about how networks work um, or things like that I think on the other side of it um, quite a few people who write a lot of code um, in the security world they are writing code under the gun they're on that like five or six day timeline that Egypt mentioned before you know where they actually have four days for real because of their you know their contractual obligations otherwise so people who are who are writing this stuff sometimes, are putting something together that isn't really designed to live very long and maybe they finished something and it was great and they 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 got it to work really well on their engagement their pen test engagement and they say you know what i'm going to clean that up a little bit and i'm going to i'm going to send that over to Metasploit as a pull request right um but we we get a widely varying level of quality in the code that people want to submit to the framework um and i think in part that's just because a lot of people who've been spending a lot of time doing security have not necessarily been spending much time trying to make good software. So, um, when, when we, when kind of Egypt and I have these kinds of conversations about this kind of thing, um, we Kind of ask ourselves, you know, what can we do to help bridge that gap and help get some of these people who are sort of security inclined um, thinking more in terms of good software practices. So, we've um, we've got a pretty extensive set of things that someone's going to need to do in order to do a pull request um, onto the framework. It'll be different if it's purely just a Metasploit module, you know, a piece of content, um, than if they're actually trying to hack on like the core of the of the framework itself, there'll be different levels of, of sort of requirement. We have a lot of um, like sort of, you need to provide external verification steps, um, potentially hopefully provide like a way to acquire a piece of software that, that may be vulnerable to this or that you could use to to verify it. Um, you know, but especially in offensive security, you have the challenge of like, you know, do I even have access to the thing that you're giving me a an exploit for, right? Like, is it is it some in, insanely expensive piece of like enterprise software that we're just not going to be able to put into one of our labs, um, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I do think that as as security, um, information security becomes much more of a of a thing outside of a cloister, um, and it's much more prevalent. And these these big breaches that constantly happen, you know, and the president getting up there talking about it, etc. It kind of comes to the fore a little mm-hmm. bit more. You'll start to see um, developers thinking a little bit more holistically and thinking a little bit more in terms of those those types of projects. And then naturally, I think the proclivity of developers, the things they want to spend their time on outside of work, you know, the sort of classic direction that people move into to, to try to say, oh, what am I going to spend my open source contribution time doing? Um, we really hope to kind of position ourselves to benefit from that that sort of trend over time. You know, I, I do think there's some convergence there, but maybe I'm just a, a closet optimist. I don't yeah.
1: Know. Speaking of that last point, um, you know, something that's been long a tradition of uh, info security folks is the you know, capture the flags. Um, I'm assuming that still goes on. I used to do that back in college. It was lots of fun. And um, it seems like recently there's been kind of like official ones put on like by Stripe and um, perhaps a few other where a company will host a CTF. And whether those are, you know, legit vulnerabilities or, you know, hard or easy or whatever, they do spur interest uh, and they kind of bring ideas around uh, secure practices to a larger group of people than the ones who are already doing it. What are, what are your thoughts on on those type of activities?
2: I think you're completely right about that. I mean, I don't really do CTF, but um, my understanding is that the average uh, CTF is significantly harder than the average pen test engagement in terms of just sort of being an intellectual challenge. Um, <laughs> that and, makes and, sense, and, actually, and yeah. Getting Somebody actually need, thought right? about like designing a,
1: a way in as opposed to just your typical open FTP server, right?
2: Right, exactly. And the thing that you're supposed to do is significantly more difficult, yeah, it's more right? Like a I mean, right, or or like in the case of um, you know, of Defcon like it's kind of the World Series or Super Bowl or whatever your sports metaphor is of of CTF and you're really what actually what you end up doing is, you know, reversing binary software like, you know, live, <laughs> right? So, um it's it's not th- these I think that that you're absolutely right though that 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 will probably just as sort of a fun intellectual challenge. Um, could provide kind of a way in. You know what I mean? I think that the challenge to security practitioners, to information security people now, is to um, kind of realize where their, um, where their jargon is and where their kind of collected um, sort of hidden knowledge is and this, the knowledge that they assume amongst people they talk to and, and realize that they might be talking to a software person who's an extraordinarily adept creator of software uh-huh. and really doesn't know the security landscape. But given the right kind of particular pieces of knowledge um, could really be somebody who's who's a benefit to, to the information security world. Um, I think that's kind of the attitude that that Egypt and I both approach it with is that there's just a lot of latent capability out there. So um, yeah, I think we've, you know, we've kicked around ideas for years about how can kind of how could we get more people who are more software oriented Um, you know, thinking in terms of security, and really, frankly, people who are security people thinking a little bit more in terms of good software practices. Uh, I think there's definitely an opportunity for people to kind of meet in the middle
3: on that.
1: Well, hopefully here at the changelog, we can help facilitate such things. I think even just having a conversation around it brings up um, people thinking about uh, such topics. So hopefully we'll have more, gosh, can I say synergies and get away with it?
2: Sometimes you can sometimes I think it I just works. did I think I just Sometimes it's the word you need.
1: <laughs> All right, well, I think it's time for our closing questions. So, uh, y'all know the drill. I'm going to start with Egypt and ask you who is your programming hero?
3: Um I think my hero, my programming hero is is a former coworker uh, named Michael Milvich who was just amazing in in his in his breadth of knowledge. He knew a little bit about everything uh, from from how compilers work at the base fundamental levels to, uh, you know, the Python uh, VM to uh, everything, basically. Um, and what what really made him special to me as a colleague um, was that his depth was at least as impressive as his breadth. So he knew a lot about everything. Um, and that, that was really inspiring to me, and it got me... Um, it got me looking into a lot more things and 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 really challenging myself to to be a better programmer.
1: Awesome, Trevor. How about yourself?
3: Yeah, I've I've been spending
2: so much time in Go in the last year, and I've been watching kind of all this sort of constant controversy of people being like, "Oh, it doesn't have my favorite thing in it" or whatever. Um, and I've been pretty severely impressed with uh, Rob Pike, you know, who's um, kind of a legend in the programming world. But um, you know, this this whole idea that like there could be a much better language. We could go back to some of our our basic principles and say, look at these these old principles from from C and from some early Unix programming, and say, you know, these there's some really great ideas here. There are some 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 fundamentals, and if we keep our language very small, and if we really um, sort of chart a particular course and, and not waver from that course and not kind of like bring in every idea that everyone's ever had, um, we'll be making something kind of interesting. I am always a big fan of the idea of creativity within constraints. And it's, it's been interesting to watch, um, this guy who's, you know, I, I doubt he ever really considered himself somebody who was going to become like this, um, you know, person who was sort of kind of the, the high priest of a programming language in the same way that he has. But it's been it's been nice to watch um the way that the sort of the Go authors have been um very I, I would say very generous with their time and very um interested in the reactions that people have to the things that they've built. But they also kind of maintain um, that you know they've got a vision for what this thing can be, and they they kind of stick to that, and it's been it's been cool to watch. I'm also um, like kind of in awe of Yehuda Katz, and I know a lot of people probably mentioned him on this program, but um, the guy like just makes things that need to exist. And as as a sort of a practically minded person, um, I really really appreciate that. I remember Rails dependency management before Bundler, um, you know, I, I really appreciated a couple times I needed to write a CLI tool in Ruby, really appreciated the existence of Thor. Amen to that. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. I love that somebody like, you know, sits down, he's gonna write something in Rust and he's like, Well, I need bundler for Rust, so I guess I'll just make it. <laughs> and that that kind of attitude, you know, as somebody who spends a lot of time dealing with open source stuff, that kind of attitude is just it's That's like huge. the ultimate yak shave, right?
1: Like I need a <laughs> I'm gonna write something in Rust, I need a dependency manager and you know, monster mon- yeah, much the cargo. Here we are yeah, all benefiting exactly. from it, right? Very so. cool hats off okay last one we're running low on time here is what would you be doing if you weren't working on metasploit and egypt will start with you
3: i would probably be penetration testing networks um, breaking into stuff stealing things uh, security has always been my passion and programming has been the means to that um, and if not penetration testing of networks i would i would be uh, reverse engineering binaries, um, staring at debuggers and disassemblers all day long. Uh, and in fact, that's what I was doing before I came to the Minnesota team.
1: So late, you did up so late. Love it. <laughs> How about you, Trevor?
2: I've always liked early stage startups. Um, I like sort of chaos um, and the and the interesting opportunities that come mm-hmm. out of it. So I would probably be um, off. Doing something on my own, probably in like agricultural tech. I'm really fascinated by the intersection of like um, maker technologies and um, the whole sort of like I don't even know if you can call it the food movement, but I guess kind of the food mm. movement. So something in something in that area. No, just
1: speaking to that briefly, uh, I actually listened to a great podcast this morning um, on Econ Talk. Have you ever heard of Econ Talk? It's a economics podcast out of Stanford, I believe. Um, I'm a bit of an economy nerd from time to time. Uh, All about ag tech and kind of the return of nature that's been happening. Uh, I'll link that up in the show notes. It's pretty interesting to see the results of some of the advancements that we've made recently in ag tech. Very cool. Well, guys, man, this was such a fun time. I could probably talk to you all for hours about these things, mostly because I'm so rusty that I'll just sit here and say, is this still a thing? Is that still a thing?
2: Uh, (laughs) As you as you can tell by now. Well, I'll come down to Austin and hang out.
1: It might have to happen. It might have to happen. Um, where can we find you? So, of Metasploit.com, um, on the internets, what's a good way to get a hold of you?
3: Well, I'm EgyptEGYP7 on Twitter. Um, we also maintain pound Metasploit on Freenode, and I'm in there all the time.
1: And Tur?
2: Yeah, same for me. I'm uh, Trev Rosen on uh, Twitter and GitHub, both. Um I, um, I mock uh, politicians frequently on my Twitter account, so it's, uh, it's not really my professional thing. But um, there it is. I also talk about code. So.
1: so if you're pretty politically aligned, you may not want to follow Trevor on Twitter because he may make you angry. It could
2: be, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or even if it's not politics, I might make yeah, it just might angry. just might happen.
1: Very cool. Well, thank you guys again uh, for joining me today. I also want to thank our awesome sponsors for this episode. That is CodeShip top towel harvest and transload it we appreciate your support and if you love the change log we would love if you would help support those companies as well give a little bit of a tease to upcoming shows here um in case you have not hit the subscribe button quite yet we have the hybrid group coming on to talk about CylonJS GoBot and the internet of things yeah we have we have rethink db uh, follow up with the earlier interview we had with the CTO there, as well as uh, Saranya Barak with Code Newbie upcoming. All sorts of fun stuff. Make sure you subscribe. And with that, until next time, let's say goodbye.
3: Goodbye.
2: Goodbye.